Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center, whose goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. We are in the midst of one of the most tumultuous periods in recent memory, perhaps even in the history of the United States, a global pandemic, an unprecedented moment of racial reckoning, a profound crisis of democratic norms and institutions in the country. The month of January alone witnessed an extraordinary sequence of events, including an armed insurrection at the Capitol, a second impeachment of a president, and then an inauguration that some feared might not happen. The chaos of the time has sent historians back into the past to locate parallels or benchmarks with which to measure our present era. History in this regard serves as a guide to help us understand how we got where we are. And one branch of history, public history, seeks to make knowledge of the past widely available, not just to a community of scholars, but to the public at large. I'm pleased to welcome to then and now one of the country's most prominent public historians, Anthea Hartig, who since 2019 has been at the helm of one of the country's preeminent sites of public history. Dr. Hartig is the Elizabeth McMillan Director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. She came to this assignment from her previous post as Executive Director and CEO of the California Historical Society, where she served for seven years. Few people know as well as she does the challenges and opportunities of history in the public domain. And so at this extraordinary moment in time, it seems fitting to talk to her about where we are and what the task of history is in this moment. Welcome to you, Anthea. Oh, thank you so much, David. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you, as you said, at this incredible moment in time. Incredible moment in time, which we will talk about, but we're going to retreat to the past and to your past to get a sense of how you got to where you are. Um, so let's in particular talk about your path to Washington. You're a native Californian. You graduated from UCLA, uh, where you had some about his about what you want to hear, and spent the bulk of your professional career in the state. So what's your California story? Oh, well, thank you so much for asking. And as you know, the risk of asking a historian about themselves, I'll try and, and uh, be succinct. I was incredibly fortunate to grow up as a third-generation Californian on my father's side in, a, in, a, in an era of what we thought was unprecedented change. But of course, just think about how much California has changed since I uh, came into a, a small, you know, suburban uh, town of then Alta Loma. It wasn't even incorporated into Rancho Cucamonga yet. Uh, in a house that had been, you know, the month, about probably about six months before Orange Groves. And um, in hindsight, I think I came into a layered, complicated cultural landscape. I didn't know that at the time. But I was incredibly fortunate to have very history-minded family, even though we were living uh, in a track home. 
and you might not expect that. Um, it might seem incongruous to some, but for me, it became a really important part of my journey to understand how both our family, families around us uh, had both arrived there and really what had happened before we got there. That sustaining kind of spirit of inquiry and understanding was was inculcated at a very young age. My uh, When I was t- 10, my great-great-aunt died, and we had a very short amount of time to for the whole family to get um, everything out of her very large Victorian house in Inglewood, when, where they'd moved in 1903, and not much had changed since 1903 in that house. And I'll never forget sitting on the stairwell and with the light coming through the stained glass windows and, and watching all the adults go through all this historic material. And, um, and my dad being, you know, the lower generation, the younger generation found a chest in the feed barn in the feed storage shed where, cause you of course had chickens and he thought it was a civil war Calvary chest. And it was, and it was filled with letters from uh, with, uh, three brothers, Drew Straws. Two of them went to fight for the Union. They left the farm in Illinois and one stayed behind. And so these were the letters that were sent from the field uh, to the brothers. So imagine you're a little, a little girl, fourth grade in, in, um, southern, in suburban Southern California, and your dad gets to bring in a Civil War cavalry chest and, with letters. And we had the... Um, the accompanying sword, very cool for some of the young uh, fourth graders. Um, but I'd like to think of that moment. I said, my dad still has the chest. I later taught with those letters as when I was teaching U.S. history at La Sierra University. Um, and I, I think that at the same time, that feeling that we were about to lose that history happened because my great, great aunt had never married. She gave her beautiful house to her church and the church tore it down the week after we took everything out. So that, that sense of fragility too of history, that it needs to be stewarded and needs to be kept uh, was certainly, um, yeah, certainly instilled at me at a young age. (laughs) It it sounds like even at that young age, you developed um, your sense for the materiality of history. Um, I'm thinking of the sword, which is so important to your your professional career. Yeah. On my mom's side, they, she had come to teach uh, math and science as uh, from Rhode Island as a, a very, as a young woman out of, out of uh, undergraduate school. And she had an amazing family, an Irish um, immigrant family. And my grandmother, who I don't remember well, would always bring things to us and to her that she knew that my mother loved, right? That she would bring some kind of an, an heirloom. And, and so certainly that materiality was, was reinforced. Um, simultaneously in that kind of young, tender age, which is why I think K through 12 and even pre-K through 12 or, or pre-K through 14, uh, if, uh, if not 16, education is so important in, in instilling that awareness of, um, of our place in the great experiment of humanity. I had an amazing, uh, we had an amazing young community of, of teachers and one of whom wrote a book on the native uh, California Indian history of Cucamonga, of that valley. And so I kind of thought that almost everyone that knew the, the complicated uh, histories of, of their place. Um, I, I had hoped that people would better understand um, 
the land on which they were living and the and if you didn't understand the pain and the complications of how history had unfolded there, but at least you understood it was deep, right? And it had a, a deepness that maybe you couldn't see uh, that was below ground or, or held in story uh, or held in uh, sacredness or community. And, you know, to this day, uh, I'm here in Washington, D.C. I'm, I'm on the ancestral lands that were shared by the Piscataway, the Nakotchank, um and they're, you know, as you know, the descendants are here. Our communities are, are very rich with Native peoples from all over um, the continent, especially here in Washington and in Los Angeles. And, but yet we still, I think, struggle to recognize that. So I think it was a gift that a teacher named Don Klukas wrote Light Over the Mountain, which we think is what Cucamonga means, um, and that I was exposed to that at an early age. Um, later, I realized that my high school was built on an Indian burial ground. <laughs> yeah. So you had, even before you knew that, you had both a sense of the importance of history and of the complexity of history, as well as, as, well as of its materiality. What sort of consciousness um, did you bring with you to UCLA when you majored as an undergraduate? Oh, well, I was going to be a history, I was going to be an English major. Oof. Oh, no, I wasn't going to do, I wasn't going to be a historian. No, no, I was going to be an English major. And um, because I love literature, I love the written word. I, you know, I, I was infatuated with, uh, and I still am. And I took my first couple of history classes and just completely fell in love. The professors who were there, and these were big survey classes. These are Scott Waz classes or, um, but, and it was, uh, it was it, in, taught in a way that made history come alive. It wasn't just the primary sources, which I loved, which I grew to love even more, and understanding the archival record, the silences of it, the, um, the uh, complicated nature of it, and uh, the stewardship needs of it, of course, I think about every day. But it was, it was made to come alive in ways that were resonant to my current self, right? They were resonant to my current, um, my current struggles or our, my families or our communities. And so it was very powerful. So after my first history class, my freshman year, um, I was rowing crew for UCLA and I um, never missed an opportunity to, you know, to get a little workout in. And so I put my 10 speed bike on my shoulder and I would take the stairs up to the history department, which I think was in Bunch Hall, sixth floor. Is it still there? It still is. Okay. And I just declared I wanted to be a history major. I think probably the secretary, God love her, was like, okay, hon, all right, come on in. Um, and so I never really looked back. Um, I ended up falling in love with colonial U.S. history, um, really at, um, you know, at, at the tutelage of, of Gary Nash. His pathbreaking Red, White, and Black had just come out. And looking back on it now, it's two key things, David. It's place-based, you know, Gary in particular, completely um, then and now, uh, to use your frame, I think completely understood the importance of, of, of starting on the ground, you know, an incredible, you know, powerful uh, guiding philosophy of a lot of social historians, and saw instantly the framing of colonial, of the colonial experience as a set of encounters, as a set of intersections, as we might call them now. Um, and as a very powerful and complicated and um, messy 
and difficult and challenging set of, of cultural uh, clashes and exchanges. And so the, the bursting through of the hegemonic, especially narrative of the creation of, of the country was, you know, was, was done by one of the masters in the field. And so I was incredibly fortunate uh, to, uh, to be at UCLA at that time. I was there from 82 to 86. And did you have a sense then that this was your calling, that you too would share in this work of complicating uh, the received historical mm-hmm. narrative and would be interested in what our friend and colleague Steve Aaron likes to think of as the convergences of history? Right. I, I did. I, um, at Gary's urging, I applied for an education at home program that he um, knew about very well because his one of his um, mentees, Dr. Sharon Salinger, had started her career at UC Riverside and had created this program with, uh, with Ed Galstead, one of the founding faculty of UC Riverside's history department, and Ed, you know, amazing um, historian of, of U.S. religion. And so for a quarter... We, went, we lived in Colonial Williamsburg, the winter quarter, right, when, when you could live in Colonial Williamsburg, and we did an immersive colonial U.S. history class. So I was going to be a colonialist. David, I was, I was all set. And I also, thanks to Sharon and, and Gary, uh, applied to UC Riverside, you know, where Sharon was, and then I received a, a, a full scholarship um, to start my Ph.D. there. Uh, which I was, again, still convinced I was going to be a colonialist and uh, study gender and politics uh, in Quaker Philadelphia. But what happened on the way to the forest? As luck would happen, um, I took a turn. I took it for the time, and Sharon and I have talked about this since, the UCR History Department had a long parallel track of a public history program, which they called the Program in Historic Resource Management. And after I'd finished my master's coursework, I switched to that program. And that was not without some mini departmental drama because I had I was on kind of the what they call the the regular PhD track, and I had I had switched. Um, but it proved to be one of the most important choices in my career because I had already I was I felt grounded or you know, constantly learning um, in uh, a lot of the kind of rich research and historiographical training. But then when I switched over to the program in historic resources management, which is now just simply called the public history program there, it opened up three tracks, archival management, museum studies, and historic preservation. So for me, it, it, it made sense then. In fact, one of my professors, when I switched, you'll love this considering um, the Luskin uh, Center's name, said, you know, you would actually be really good in policy. And I don't know if he meant it nicely, but I took that <laughs> and, uh, and I ran with it. And after I finished my master's in, uh, in public history, I went back to Colonial Williamsburg and interned there, which was a required part of, of the program, which I, I still to this day cannot emphasize internships, paid internships in particular. Um, all of our internships now at the museum, at the Smithsonian are paid. Um, and then I I was lucky to be a part of an early, the first class in American Studies PhD at William & Mary. That was, um, which was an, a really remarkable experience. I moved back to California though, when one of my professors at UCR kindly had forwarded me that the um, 
the town up in which I had grown was advertising for its very first public historian, a specialist in historic preservation. And on a whim, I applied and they flew me out and I was offered the job. And I thought, okay, who gets to come back home and, and, and really start, I started an oral history project. I, we started a landmark project. We did, uh, or enhanced the landmark project. We did uh, interpretive public and art projects. We did, we started the city's archives. And when you're 25, you know, you, I was, I hope I was gracious and humble, but at the, now looking back, I think what an incredible opportunity to start really applying my, my role as a public historian and a public servant. And what, which, did you, what did you learn there in that job? Oh, my goodness. Well, I worked for two cities, the city of Rancho Cucamonga and then a more mature uh, city, the, the former heart of the Citrus Belt, Riverside. And I called, uh, I called it my second master's. I learned so much, David, about how decisions are made that shape environments. I learned how much or sometimes how little public officials are briefed and truly, I think, understand how they may replicate systems of inequality, how they may, um, by their their very core decisions, how much power they actually have in those city budgets. I, especially in Riverside, but also in Rancho Cucamonga, I, I really started to understand what we what we collectively call and what has been called really since the 1920s, cultural landscapes, right? When you actually think about um, the contours um, of the depth of how um, the, the land has changed over time and what forces are at play there. Um, I also learned a, a lot about urban planning, which I, to this day, uh, as well as architecture, I've taken a lot of architectural history classes at UCLA because Tom Hines was there. I mean, it was an amazing time to be at UCLA. I think any time is an amazing time to be at UCLA. But um, so I got to weave all of that, right? And there wasn't one part of necessarily one part of my public historian um, uh, kind of new chapters and verse, if you will. I was writing the book that um, I didn't feel I could that I didn't feel I used, uh, even legal history, right? When I became more involved in historic preservation, um, all the tools that I've learned from histor- uh, from people of the past in terms of how to be good advocates, and how to be good activists even, came into play as well. So it was a, it was a truly uh, remarkable time. Um, and I also, I think, learned a lot about um, both workplace and... Uh, cultural and social, racial, gender-based inequalities, inequities, um, and really how those played themselves out and how we even went about thinking about recording history, mm-hmm. saving history, mm-hmm. what we landmark, what we preserve, right? what we hold dear mm-hmm. is an incredible testament to the values that we hold and the power that is shaped by them. So as you were developing your understanding of what public history is, mm-hmm. um, mindful of all of these um, impulses and instincts mm-hmm. and sensitivities that you're, uh, that you're developing in the 1980s, mm-hmm. um, how would you say... And 90s, public- yeah. My first job was 1990, yeah. And the 90s, yes, in mm-hmm. um, the 90s. So how would you say your vision of public history and more generally 
public history have changed over mm. the last 30 years or so? That's a wonderful question, David. I, I do think about that. I've been afforded chances to think about that. One of the, I think, the key ways in which I, I believe and I, and I hope I've helped is to serve as bridges, like even to build them or just to hold them together when they already exist and to strengthen them when you find them is to bridge the methodologies, the scholarship, the findings, the depth to which historians um, now at this for, well, thousands of years, we've had historians, hundreds of thousands of years probably, but um, thousands that we know of. And, um, but as a modern profession, really growing up, if you will, since the 1880s, we're at an incredibly rich and very mature moment in the profession. But that maturity and that scholarship and that interpretation, those lenses, if you will, don't necessarily always make their way into public commemoration. So that distance, that gap between what we see on a roadside marker, what we see on a monument or what we see in a museum and scholarship. And the scholarship that is evolving and is taking shape in every history department across the nation doesn't always then translate. So sometimes I felt in my career that I'm almost a translator, right? That I'm taking scholarship and research, doing work with it in public, with community, not to community, but you know, with community. I also think that I've seen a transference of the understanding that agency and power and authority are best served shared, right? That we can work with and share our tools, democratize the tools of an historian. I joke that I don't, I'm not a brain surgeon, but I like to change minds. And I think that that, um, that transference, if you will, uh, has been really key. Um, you've also seen the public history kind of come into its own. My very first board I was asked to serve on, I'm a big believer in, in service and nonprofit service, was the California Council for the Promotion of History, which was based on the National Council of Public History. And I ended up serving on their board too, but who had, a, a I think, a slightly more defined, that tripartite, design that I inherit, that I experienced at UCR, you know, of archival management, museum studies, start preservation. I think what we've seen is a, a simultaneous kind of merging of those to really get into a kind of a consolidated um, heritage, cultural heritage management, um, historic resource management uh, framing. And, um, and I think that's all for the better because simultaneously, We've then also applied all of the new tools of our trade, geographic information systems, mapping systems, digital humanities, um, you know, in-depth um, projects that weave community story with place that tackle kind of the, the old, older hierarchies, really, if you will, of the way in which whether it be the National Register of Historic Places deemed something important or, you know, a museum like the Smithsonian deemed it important. So it's, it's an amazing time to be an historian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 
It is an amazing time. And thank you for charting your yeah, own cool. path. I really resonate with the the idea of translation, which I've often thought mm. uh, is exactly my task um, and the task of historians. Um, and I like the added uh, category, the psychoanalytic category of transference. Um, uh, but the mm. translational model presumes um, unidirectionality. Mm, um, mm -hmm. And in fact, the flow is not simply from yeah. exalted scholars in the oh, ivory gosh, tower yeah. to right. the public, right. but you yeah. know, far more multidirectional than that. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering you know, how you brought that more multidirectional mm -hmm. approach to your work. Um, for example, at the California Historical Society, which mm -hmm. was um, the, the penultimate stop in your sure. career to date. Right. Well, thank you for asking. So when I arrived at, at CHS, I was, I was so grateful uh, to be there because I had been, you know, the re regional director for the Western region for the National Trust the years before that. And before that, you know, I had been a, a professor, but simultaneously serving as the chair of the State Historic Resources Commission under Governor um, uh, Davis and, and then later Brown. So I had come to the California Historical Society dealing with immovable heritage. Most historic places and sacred sites, you can't move very easily. But what I had come to CHS with was a, a, a long-developed, uh, for which I'm very grateful and live in kind of humi grateful humility for, of working with communities, whether they be at Rancho Cucamonga, Riverside, um, who understood innately the importance of the power of place as Dolores Hayden um, framed it in her great work that, um, you know, some of which was done at UCLA. That, that the, there's a wonderful Adrian Rich poem that, um, one of the lines is that we, we reconstitute the world. Do you know that poem? My heart is, um, hold on just a sec, I'll grab it for you. Uh, I'll find it and share it with you. But it talks about this kind of, we to try to reconstitute the world when there's so much unmaking, right? There's so much kind of disassociation with story and, and erasure of, of the past. So working with, a remarkable range of communities, whether it was the Japanese American community in um, in Riverside at the Harada House, um, whether it was with um, Native Chamorro activists and advocates in historic preservation in Guam, it, you know, I had already kind of come to CHS with many, many gifts bestowed on me of that, as you said, that beautiful interplay, right, that transference of knowledge. And I'd worked with numerous tribes around uh, California and the West. Um, we had done significant work with um, um, the uh, broader Asian American, Asian Pacific Islander community, uh, with the Latino community, communities, plural. So CHS provided this remarkable opportunity to, to really go back in a way to the original documents, right? To go back into the archives it has one of the most important special collections in the state. If you put Bancroft State Library and the Huntington and CHS together, you have you really have the bulk of um, of the more you know of the of the more significant special collections in the state. Um, 
so combining that with a remarkable opportunity uh, to create exhibits, which was a brand new experience for me. I called on a, an incredible friend who had just left the UCLA's Hammer uh, Museum, Jessica Howe, and said, hey, I have three months to do an exhibit on the Golden Gate Bridge and celebrating the 75th. And she said, you're joking, right? I said, no, this is what I inherited. This is my, you know, this was, this was pledged by my dear predecessor. And, um, and we did it. We brought kind of a kind of an artful mentality to exhibition creation, but in that, in doing those exhibits and we ended up doing between online and in situ, we probably ended up doing almost 20 of them. Um, we also then tested out all kinds of different partnerships, different ways of creating exhibits, um, different reasons, commemorative, uh, otherwise working with artists, working with historians, working with community members, um, and then reclaiming stories like Juana Briones, which we did with Alcamarillo at Stanford and an incredible group of people. Imagine doing an exhibition on a 19th century Afro-Latina who we have no pictures of, she, we have nothing written that, uh, that she left us but yet whose life spanned the entirety you know, to the 1889. So imagine what, you know, imagine what she saw. We got into that work because her house was demolished when I was still with the National Trust. The last, one of the last fetches is her rancho, which close, was adjacent to Stanford's, just to give you some geolocation. So those projects helped me understand that incredible weave, right, of, again, as you said, of materiality, of preservation practice. We opened up the Wannabriones exhibition with a portion of her wall, of the wall of her house that had been salvaged, that we, we stored in situ inside the California Historical Society, and with the, the legal case, a copy of the, of the briefs that showed all of this, again, applied history, right, applying our tools as a historian to try and reclaim the stories of the past to save what was left of this incredible woman's life. So it rolled up all together for me, a, 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 an incredible understanding of the power certainly of exhibitions. It also, we were also able to work um, with um, our partners in the state um, and at the state library in particular um, and the State Office of Education to create, um, uh, and to start creating anyway, a large public, um, primary source-driven project, Teaching California, which again tried to open up not just our archives, but the archives of repositories all across the state to align to California's new uh, K-12 history and social science standards. One of the key things I also learned at CHS in a uh, this is, I think, so pertinent for the great work you're doing at the center, is that history to survive and thrive in a state as vast as the nation state of California, public-private partnerships are absolutely essential. In the end, I, you know, I and many others gave our all to the California Historical Society, and, and they are still are giving their all there. But when you set up a a, a state-mandated historical society as a nonprofit, it the search for a sustainable business model, like so many nonprofits in California, becomes your number, you know, kind of your number one search. So you have to both keep 
all of the momentum of running a nonprofit and all of the momentum of running the best, most attuned, most you know, dedicated historical society you can for the people of your state. Um, and so that, uh, that was a remarkable challenge and a remarkable gift. And I'm, you know, I'm still very close um, uh, to them. And I truly hope that the leadership of the state looks across um, the state's heritage and cultural landscape and arts landscape. I think they're doing better recently on the arts and just realizes how important it is to California. So, you know, you, you've just described how deeply rooted you are in the history of the state of California, mm-hmm. how you devoted so much to unpacking the complexity, to attending to uh, the ruptures and, and, and the, the inequities and, uh, and the sources of fascination mm-hmm. of California history. Mm-hmm. Why, pray tell, did you pick up and... <laughs> Leave California. Right. And, I mean, the allure is obvious, but could you tell right. us sure. what it would like to make a decision to come to the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian Institution? Uh, I, I'd love to. Um, you know, I I say I, I said to you before, David, that if my time with cities was um, my second master's, I, I joked that my time at, at at the National Trust and CHS was my second PhD. So I don't know what I'm getting now, but. Um, I have been, um, and again, this is probably my training as well as my proclivities. For me, understanding the richness of California is really understanding the richness of the world. And I don't mean that in any kind of arrogant way that California is the world, but California is a lot of the world, as you know. Um, but I was also incredibly fortunate when I was at the National Trust. I We ran the office of the Western office out of San Francisco, but we worked in the eight Western states and territories of of Guam and Micronesia for a DC-based nonprofit, the National Trust for Historic Preservation. So my modalities were always kind of, especially trans-bordered, as you know, because many of our borders are so artificial. And I I spent a a lot of time really in those eight Western states, including um, uh, Alaska and Hawaii and a bit of time in Guam, as I mentioned previously. I was also fortunate to um, uh, to be the guest of the New Zealand Trust um, when I was at the National Trust and had some, and it, you know, it's not incredibly global, but I had, I, I, I craved those kind of different perspectives because in the, um, in the Pacific in particular, um, we see, we saw then, and from, from Africa and Latin America as well, we started to see this incredible um, indigenous-led movement of decolonization, which is a huge part of what you know museums and I think all history, uh, all historians and all historic repositories are, are uh, needing to and and now are engaging. So, I was in, I was always impressed uh, and, uh, and always had followed, of course, the National Museum of American History. I remember going there as a girl. My, my dad remembers going there. I have my dad's scrapbook from when he went in 1950 uh, before it was in its current building. I got to know the, um, some of the Smithsonian leadership better when we had conversations about whether or not we could do a project together in San Francisco. And so I was so honored as you would guess, uh, when they asked if I were interested. And, you know, first I was, and I said, yes. And first I was one of six and then I was one of three. And then I was one of two candidates. And um, it, it remains to this day an incredible honor. But as to why, 
the, the opportunities to steward the nation's collection, as you know, we've conservatively 1.8 million objects and three linear miles of uh, shelf miles of archival material. And that's pretty conservatively assessed. Um, it's an 800,000 square foot building on 14 acres. Uh, it's as old as I am. I like to joke. We have deep roots, but at 56 year old self, almost 57, uh, it opened in 1964. And I think one of the more amazing collections of historians, educators, you know, communicators, deeply devoted um, people who specialize in, in programming, people who specialize in exhibition design, um, at a time when, so um, at, let's say I was recruited in uh, 2018 and I started in 2019, at a time when I thought that history was starting to matter more and more. Remember, that was Lin-Manuel's Hamilton, you know, history has its eyes on you. All of a sudden, history is doing things. History is judging you. And as you and I know, David, history doesn't do anything. Historians do. And, um, and the opportunity to, um, uh, to embrace that mantle, right, to set out a vision, which we set out my first couple months I was there at what, at what the most accessible, inclusive, relevant, and sustainable, I added that a couple weeks later, but um, what, what that meant, what, what did the most accessible, inclusive, relevant, and sustainable history, public history institution and public museum in the nation look like in 2030? So we, we claimed that vision, uh, we embraced that vision, and then I we had an outdated um, strategic plan just because it, it ended in 2018, you know, um, when they were searching for my position and when my predecessor, uh, John Gray, left in May of that year. And our, um, our staff um, and then our board um, uh, came up with and then embraced um, a new mission, right? Empowering people to create a more just and compassionate future by sharing, preserving, and exploring the complexities of the past. And you could argue that, and people did, like, well, why are you empowering? Why aren't you just educating? There's a key difference between those words. Of course, our main mission is education, public history education, or science history education, or air and space, or history of art, or the remarkableness of, um, of the newer museums, like the Native, uh, the National Museum of the American Indian, or uh, of course, National Museum of African American History and Culture. So the chance to paint on that size of a canvas, if you will, was uh, was incredible. And I also feel very at home in DC. My sister lived here for a while. She's back in California now. Um, the shattering impacts of the sixth of January. Um, which we, I'm happy to talk about, were um, so much more felt. I live here on Capitol Hill. This is an 1855 little barracks row house, probably built in part, at least by enslaved persons. So kind of living here and feeling that has been just an incredible um, kind of gift of, a, of an experience. And then leading, leading through COVID, we're about to be a year. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, t 
talk about being an eyewitness to history. I mean, you really were right on the front lines. But I want to just go back and uh, and and have you talk about um, your arrival uh, in Washington D.C. in 2019 in the midst of one of the most fractious, tumultuous, um, dysfunctional periods in American political history, and particularly in Washington D.C. Right. Um, and there you are. Um, embarking upon a a new strategic vision for your institution mm -hmm. in that extraordinarily mm -hmm. fractious yeah. and contentious environment. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, what was that like? What were you know? What kinds of pressures did you feel around you? Um, what kinds of conflicts did you either get in or mm -hmm. avoid into or avoid? Right. Um, and how did you manage to steer? Excuse me. How did you manage to steer? the ship of the museum to this goal of empowering people to create just and a just and compassionate future through a recourse to the past? Oh, thank you for asking. That's a great question. I think steering, if I could, you know, just amend your verb uh, tense. Um, I was incredibly fortunate. I mean, I was hired by Dr. David Scorton when he was secretary and then right right after my appointment was announced, um, uh, David announced uh, that he was um, uh, moving on as well. So when Secretary Lonnie Bunch uh, III um, became the 14th secretary, the first African-American, the first historian, and the first former museum director to lead the Smithsonian, there was a remarkable sense of alignment. Um, Lonnie is not just a truly remarkable human being and incredible historian, but he, who too had spent time at the California African-American Museum in Los Angeles. He'd been at the Smithsonian, he'd been at, at the Chicago History Center. And so, and then of course spent 13 amazing years, you know, building the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. So to have that alignment, right? To have a public historian at the helm of the Smithsonian, none other than Lonnie himself, uh, was and remains a remarkable uh, uh, both partnership, but also a, a remarkable alignment, if you will, of Lonnie's innate understand, understanding of, of the power of what we can do. Um, we are very, very careful, and we teach each other a lot, I think, throughout the Smithsonian. We pride ourselves on our nonpartisanship, as you know, it's a set up with the Board of Regents, the chair of the Regents, who I've had the honor of getting to know, is always the acting Supreme Court, um, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, rather. So um, this one, uh, Chief Justice uh, John Roberts takes his role very seriously. He's a history major from Harvard, and he loves the Smithsonian. He loves being... Um, um, uh, the literally the titular head of the Smithsonian Board of Regents. Um, so the nonpartisan nature, though, I think historians in particular in, in the room have also helped under everyone understand that our very our very being is political. My my body is political, right? Historians are trained to think that lowercase p, um, and and especially um, um, you know throughout really the, you know, post-civil rights era, um, but you could argue for much of, uh, of our past, we've, we've worked in, in, in political ways. Um, our exhibition that opened on the history of girls, you know, the thesis is that girlhood 
is politicized and political and that girls can act in political ways. So it's not something we shirk from, especially since we have an incredible um, department of political historians uh, filled with political historians. Um, but it's something we try and, and kind of um, continuously bring into the world that the work we're doing in public history, we, um, we try and tread very carefully in understanding how to bring a full interpretation, an intersectional interpretation to what we do. I, I also felt, and, and Ani did as well, because he approved of my issuing them, that the museum's duty as a public institution, our duty as public servants and public historians, pushed us to help people contextualize what we've been through the past couple of years. Um, and, you know, as you know, my statements, whether it be on COVID or on uh, George, uh, George Floyd's killing, um, whether it be what happened in, um, just a couple weeks ago now at, at the insurrection on the Capitol, were an attempt at least to start a conversation that's rooted in, his, in history, rooted in historiography, that then tries to marry a contemporary understanding of how that history is bringing forth, how we're stitching in time, if you will. And that same day, yeah. We, okay, go ahead. It sounds like you're really pushing um, in what to my mind seemed very productive way, that balance between being an inescapably political being an institution and being nonpartisan. Um, not every historical museum would issue statements, um, you know, uh, on January 6th. Uh, they would play it safe. Um, and it seems to me very uh, felicitous and, and salutary that you, that you, uh, that you did so. Um, I, I'm wondering, you know, A, what was the reaction? Mm -hmm. and, and B, you know, what the work of navigation is like. Sure. I mean, you, you've described Justice, Chief Justice Roberts sure. as sympathetic. Yeah. I'm sure there are other players uh, involved, and I'm there sure- There are many players, it's, it's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. What's it like? Well, and, and our, remember, we're two-thirds like, funded by Congress, like right? Yeah, we receive um, the, the museum. Um, the Smithsonian is about a $1.5 billion operation, and right around a billion of that comes um, from Congress, comes from the people, and we take that incredibly seriously. On the 6th, one of the key things, as well as actually for, for COVID, uh, for um, uh, race-based um, race killings and for police brutality and for everything that we've, we've witnessed, uh, huge economic disparities, the impacts of systemic racism. One of the amazing things about working at the National Museum of American History is because we actually have the materiality to talk about it. So when, before COVID, when 2020 was going to be just a complicated election year, our teams had a plan all laid out that we had worked on the year before when I first came. And like we had done for the past probably 10 presidential elections, we were in the field collecting. So our political historians like to joke, like when they were in Iowa for the caucus, they were probably the only people going to all of the rallies, right? Because that's how they would collect. That was part of our collecting plan. So we focused on the 6th on that day. That was the peaceful transference of power day, right? When you had 
the congressionally, the constitutionally mandated joint session of Congress presided over the vice president of the United States. That had basically been that way since about 1800. So not only did we have material to talk about and reflect back on that transference and how that was so violently interrupted, we had also the, I think, not just the collections base, but the of the work of our historians to understand what also had happened that morning in Georgia, right? With, with the validation of the uh, Georgia senatorial race and the, that the first African-American Senator of a former Confederate state um, was going back since reconstruction. So, and then really framing reconstruction for a lot of people um, who, for historians, that's, that's a critical part of, of, of American history. But as you, as you know, we've had to kind of reteach ourselves as a public uh, about that time frame and about the election of 1876. So, so again, I guess, David, it's kind of bringing our work as historians, bringing our work as stewards of, of the national collection and figuring out where we can be of utility. How can we help people? How can we, ref- we reflect? And and saving our saving our 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 words on that level, you know, director statement uh, for when the nation is thrown into those moments where the crisis is so up is is so painful or is so um, uh, consuming. And what I I think as we grow into now our almost year mark of being shut down, mostly shut down due to the pandemic. I started talking last fall about the cascading crisis. And I think one of my comments, you know, one of my statements reflected that a viral racial economic and then climate. Um, and it's not just in California with our, you know, with the horrific um, wildfire season we had last year. Um, but the many, many ways we're seeing the crisis of climate impact um, our, both our nation and, and our, our pale blue dot, as you know, Carl Sagan likes to say, the only or said like the only home we've ever known. So, um, the the process of review and writing these, of course, you know, it's kind of like any other you know, kind of complicated piece of uh, two pages long, and, and a lot of a lot of great thinking went into it. But again, my goal is always what's that what's that higher purpose? What what can we do to give people at least the start of the conversation? I would love if we could convene the conversations, you know, we're convening them online, of course, like everyone else is. Um, and I can't wait for the day where we can both do that, of course, because that's a, a great democratizing and uh, tool of accessibility when you can do things online. But I so look forward to the day when we can actually bring back people into the museum to do the same. So I'm curious, what is your responsibility um, as custodian in some sense of the nation's history, um, or at least through the institutional medium of, of the museum. What is your responsibility to capture um, and present and give voice to tens of millions of people who believe that Joe Biden was not elected mm-hmm. president, mm-hmm. that um, it was uh, a hoax, a fraud, right. uh, and there was a, you know, a, a very intricate conspiracy Donald Trump from being reelected. Mm-hmm. 
I'm just curious, how, how do you imagine future curators mm-hmm. will present that, um, will um, sort of capture that memory, which is so important to sure. understand from the moment we're in? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's a great question, David. We are beholden uh, to our own standards of curation and our own standards of um, the professionalism uh, to collect representations, right, of, of, of what, we, what we all, you know, witness happening. Um, and we build that right into the political history collection in particular. It's not just in political history, of course, collections. Um, and we're collecting people who think that, that COVID is a hoax. We're collecting people, you know, from people who think that the vaccine um, uh, is dangerous, um, but we also walk a fine line, uh, which I will, um, which I will, uh, you know, um, own of also not encouraging what we know to be, uh, anti-scientific, anti-humanitarian, anti-historical, um, uh, opinions that violate our own kind of code of ethics, you know, see what I mean? It, you know, it's this kind of constant kind of mirroring. Are we, when we collected the morning after on the, on the 7th of January, you know, over promotion of, um, you know, hanging by, you know, hanging by their, their hanging by their heels, stop the steal. And, you know, and all of the things that we collected off with their heads, you know, over promotion of, of acts of promoting acts of violence is not never a place we want to to be in but we also have to collect a representative sample um, of of what we experienced increasingly we could also do that photographically right i don't need to collect um you know uh mountains of material um uh, from the insurrection but i need to make sure that we don't miss an opportunity to collect the ephemeral. We have, we may have many, many opportunities in the future to collect. So rapid response collecting, which is kind of, this falls under as as some, some of our COVID work does too. And some of our black lives matter work definitely did because we also tried to figure out how to safely collect in the field during a pandemic, which is not easy as you might guess. As, so rapid response collecting has been made very challenging this past almost year, but it still remains um, a guiding principle for us that again, to collect material that we may, uh, we may forever lose that handmade sign on a restaurant in New York city that said, you know, COVID's here, but we'll be back in two weeks. You know, the, um, that, that of course is a, you know, is an incredible challenge. Um, but one that I think is also incredibly important. Um, well, we could obviously continue for many more hours to take up these questions, but uh, the hour is coming to a close, and I want to ask you a final question. Certainly. Uh, that it and I can read you a, that poem, yeah. <laughs> okay, that could be a summation too. Um, and it's connected because, um, you know, I want to ask you to, in a certain sense, um, summarize and distill mm-hmm. the essence of what you do mm-hmm. and what you have been doing so 
so brilliantly for um, the last several decades. 30, um, asking, 30 years. It's 31 this year. Yeah. Where has the time gone? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very simple question. Uh, what does history teach us? Um, mm-hmm. What do you want and expect for history to do for yourself and for the public that you serve? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that history teaches us uh, humility. I think it teaches us our own agency and our own power. If anything, I hope it teaches us our own interconnectivity and our own responsibilities and accountabilities to each other and how fragile those those bonds can be, uh, whether they be uh, between uh, two people or for um, to an entire, you know, construction of a republic on which we all try and, uh, uh, and stand. I will end with a poem, if you don't mind. It's short. It's from Adrienne Rich, um, from her Dreams of, of a Common Language uh, that was published um, in 1978. My heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have to cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. A passion to make and make again where such unmaking reigns. Thank you, Anthea Hartig, for um, such a wonderful way to end and for such a rich conversation on then and now. It's really been a most illuminating hour. Uh, thank you. Oh, thank you. As I opened, it's it's truly an honor to be here, and I'm so incredibly proud of the work that you're doing and anything I can do to help. Thank you, and we're so delighted that you were in the position you were in, and wish, we wish you the, the best of luck. Oh, thank um, you. It's, extremely important task at this moment, at this very, very extraordinary moment in time. And thank you to our listeners out there. Let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of Then and Now uh, by emailing us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu, L-U-S-K-I-N center at history.ucla.edu. And special thanks, of course, to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, wishing you a pleasant and safe day. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.